Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Mark Reckless, AM, who is the leader of the Brexit Party group at the National Assembly. Mark, where are you from originally? I was born in London, and uh, lived in London... Till I was uh, five, then we went to California for a, a year, which I uh, remember with very, very fond memories. Came back, spent a couple of years uh, just outside Sheffield, and then my parents settled in Somerset when I was about eight or nine, where they uh, still still are, in a little village about 12 miles south of Bath, where my father was a doctor. Because obviously you come from quite a well-heeled background, because you went to uh, quite a prestigious public school, didn't you? Marlborough College? Yeah, I went to a, a prep school for a few years called All Hallows, which was a sort of Catholic school in Somerset, near where my uh, parents lived, and uh, then to Marlborough, which... Uh, so you were a day boy, really? No, I boarded for the last year at my uh, prep school, All Hallows, and then I was uh, a boarder at Marlborough for, for five years. What do you think the school equipped you with? I think it uh, equipped me with a, a certain sort of academic underpinning. At the time I went to Marlborough, it wasn't actually that competitive to get in. I think only about 125 people applied in our year and 120 of us were allowed in. So it wasn't the sort of academically um, very selective place that it is now. And I'd say the teaching was mixed in, so, in some areas, particularly uh, in, in, in history. I was really inspired by the teaching geography as, as well. I'd gone to the school the particular penchant for sciences and then probably graduated more more towards the the arts by the time I, I, I left. But I had a sort of, I think, maths and physics, but also history and geography were my A-levels. So I had quite a, quite a broad um, a, a education and, and aspects of it were really very good and very stretching. And I remember particularly in our history classes, I'm not sure what the other pupils in the class thought, but uh, myself and uh, Daniel Hannan, a friend of mine who's now an MEP, lives uh, at the school, we were given pretty free reign to sort of debate the sort of merits of uh, Gladstone and Disraeli. I was uh, a Whig and on the sort of Gladstone side at that uh, at that time, and um, it was quite a sort of free form edu- education. And there was aspects I worked very hard, aspects sort of le- less hard, and yeah, I'm very 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 grateful for the for the opportunities that I was uh, g- given there on a on a scholarship. And then you went on to Oxford. I did. I, I took a year off when I worked for IBM. I did apply to Torts when I was there, but I, I failed to get in Torts the first time I applied. And it's um, sometimes suggested that uh, various public schools have, you know, particular in relationships with Oxford colleges, and you know, are able to to help get their pupils in. Well, we were, were were recommended that the the school had particularly good links with uh, Magdalen College in Oxford. And um, if I remember rightly, 10 of us applied to, to Magdalen at the recommendation of uh, teachers at uh, Marlborough. And all 10 of us uh, failed to, to get in. So if there had been a, 
a relationship. It wasn't one that was um, continuing between the schools. And of those ten, four of us reapplied the next year, having taken our A-levels, and all four of us then got into uh, different colleges. So uh, I went to Christchurch uh, at Oxford and studied uh, philosophy, politics and economics. So did you come from a political family, and did you get involved in student politics when you were at Oxford? I wouldn't say I came from a political family in terms of my parents. I mean, I was uh, aware, I think, that they sort of both voted um, Conservative, and they, they weren't more involved than, than, than that, though. Although my, my mother's father, my, 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 my grandfather, he had been uh, a member of the Irish Parliament, uh, a TD for Donegal East. Fianna uh, Foyle. For the, the Nationalist Fianna Foyle party, yes. Are you proud of him? I never met him. I mean, he died uh, a couple of years before I was born, but um, I, I understand uh, uh, shortly before he, he, he died, he was railing against the then uh, UK application to join the what was then called the common market and uh, was uh, concerned that sort of Ireland would be pull, pulled in behind uh, the UK in, in joining the, the common market and European Union as it became. Uh, and that was something he was uh, strongly opposed to. But one doesn't normally associate people on the right in the UK with uh, Irish Nationalist Party like Fianna Foyle. Well, I would, I, I would like to see United Kingdom governing it itself. I have a belief in sort of national independence, as I think my, my, my grandfather did. So, when you graduated, what did you go on to do then? I joined what was then called Warbucks, which was uh, a leading investment bank in the, the UK and uh, in, indeed Europe. And I became a, a UK economist for the bank, and I, I was responsible for forecasting uh, interest rates and the sterling exchange rate, and uh, liaising with, with traders and salespeople with ideas, and also sometimes writing more sort of thoughtful, even sort of somewhat academic sort of think pieces about uh, what I remember was. Um, and the sort of current account uh, situation. And I think one thing as a, a country we, we have is we have a vast amount of overseas assets but matched by quite a lot of overseas liabilities. But when we see equity markets uh, do, 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 do well or if we see the pound fall, that tends to lead to quite a significant increase in income coming into the UK and the value of UK, UK assets. And uh, that was one aspect I, applied, I explored quite a lot as an economist and I think remains relevant today. Were you involved in politics at that time? I joined the Conservative Party when I was, I think, 18, and uh, was living in Elton, which is where I lived when I was, uh, when I was born in London, um, and where my grandmother still was. Uh, was uh, I think that's where Liz, Liz Savile Roberts, the parliamentary leader of Plaid Cymru, comes from. Was she Elton or, 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 or so. Sidcup? Sidcup, it is Elton as well. I think so, yeah. Yeah, I was reading her piece in the, the, the Sunday Sunday Times, and I, I hadn't, hadn't realised she was quite quite as English as comes out of that, that, that piece and the crucial importance of the, the Welsh language in sort of her political journey. So you joined the party at uh, 18 out of conviction, um, you believed in conservative principles. At that time, was the European question important? Yes, it, it, it was. Um, I, I think what drew me into developing the views I have on the European Union was the experience of uh, shadowing the uh, European exchange rate mechanism in 87, shadowing the Deutschmark in 87, 88, and then later joining the ERM. I suppose I, I started to 
so trying to teach myself uh, economics when I was 16 or 17 years old and I was looking to apply to university to to do that and I, I felt back in 87 88 that the economy was all a bit too good to be true that there seemed to be something of an unsustainable consumer boom and it would be wise for the authorities to sort of lean against that with uh, tighter policy and higher interest rates yeah unfortunately at the the, the time um, they thought it was a sensible course for our country to put all economic policy uh, to keep the pound at the same level as the Deutschmark. So they cut interest rates at the, the, the height of a consumer boom, accentuating that boom and the resulting bust still further. I think that was a terrible mistake. And rather than learning the lessons of that, two or three years later, they then joined the European exchange rate mechanism. And when the economy needed looser policy and lower interest rates, they, they were putting interest rates up in order to keep the pound at the same level as the Deutschmark. And, and I decided that our economy was much better governed independently in our own British interests rather than in order to keep the pound at the same level against the Deutschmark or to join the euro. And it was a Conservative government that was doing that, of course. It was. And my first uh, week at uh, Oxford, I went to the, the Freshers' debate at the Oxford Union. I spoke in the, the No Confidence uh, debate uh, against the then Conservative government because it had just joined the ERM and had no credible economic policy and was going to be driving the economy into an unnecessarily deep uh, recession. So I spoke quite strongly about that. I remember uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg being a, a speaker on the other side and speaking to me afterwards quite quite nicely about my speech. And uh, Peter Lilly, who was a cabinet minister at the, the time, um, part of the government, telling me he agreed with everything that I'd said. And they, they even gave me, gave me a sort of magnum of, I don't think it was champagne, but uh, something sort of towards that which was uh, gratefully received for my uh, my freshers uh, speech at the uh, end of the evening. It's also the first first time I met, met George Osborne, if I recall correctly. But of course, in terms of the issue of European integration, obviously whatever warnings you received were not uh, heeded because we then got into um, Maastricht, didn't we, um, subsequently, and the setting up of the European single market do you think that it was a mistake for that to have happened? Do you think the single market itself was a mistake? I think the single market as it developed was a mistake. But when people talk about the single market, what they usually mean is the single European Act and the majority voting mechanisms that came in to deal with supposedly single market measures that, that were then extended uh, far, far beyond what at least Margaret Thatcher had expected them to be used for. And A, I oppose that because of the mission creep, but B, because the single market regulations and laws that were brought in essentially harmonised regulation across Europe, replacing the, the prior and I thought very positive uh, European approach following a case called Cassie de Dijon, where the European Court of Justice had said that where good may met the regulations of one member state, it should be allowed to be marketed in other member states. So a system of mutual recognition of regulations to enable cross-border trade rather than the harmonisation at a single European level of precisely what the rule I had to be or you weren't allowed to produce the goods at all. So I felt the single market uh, rules changed uh, away from a system of mutual recognition and a more market-orientated system. So one of top-down EU uh, dictates, which uh, I obviously oppose. We'll touch on the 
single market again a little later, Mark. But for the moment, you're employed by a bank, a merchant bank this time, but you then, I think, decided to enter the law, didn't you? you, you how did that come about? Well, a few things happened there between then. I, I um, went off after, I think, about four years of working as a UK economist uh, to go and do an MBA in uh, New York at Columbia University. I don't know whether it's still, I was relatively young and I'd sort of been getting into the office sort of half six or seven every sort of morning and working sort of pretty, pretty, pretty hard as an economist in that sort of banking context. And for a couple of years, I'd begun to, to do, do reasonably well at that and had been sort of rated as a, a top three analyst and had begun to make a sort of name for my, myself. And perhaps I should have stuck with it, but I, I thought I would use that sort of opportunity and being able to sort of fund a, a couple of years doing a, an MBA and a business degree in the United States to get that experience of living in, in New York. And I then came back and I worked for a, a management consulting firm uh, for a couple of years. I um, then stood for the first first, first time as a, a parliamentary candidate in um, what was then called the Medway constituency, but was was later renamed Rochester and Strood. Bob Marshall Andrews, I think. Was the yeah, name. that's right. I stood against him in 2001. And I, I cut his majority from... Um, about 5,300 to about 3,800 the first time I stood against him. And I did get the, the second highest swing of the, the eight Labour held seats in, in Kent behind Dover at the height of the asylum crisis. And then four years later, again, I got the, the, the second highest swing of those, of those seats um, behind Gravesham, where the Labour MP admitted a criminal offence in the run-up to um, the election, and I lost, I think, by um, 213, if I remember correctly, in 2005. It was 188, but I called a, called a, called a recount, and it moved slightly slightly against me. And um, over that time, I also worked for the uh, Conservative Party's policy unit, and um, I helped to develop the party's policy of elected police and crime uh, commissioners. Worked quite, quite closely with Oliver Letwin and... Uh, Greg Clark at that time, he seemed to have taken a different trajectory, at least in views on the European issue, uh, from me um, since. And then, then I sort of moved and uh, retrained as a lawyer after the 2005 election. What made you do that? I thought if um, I were to become a Member of Parliament, it would be good to have a knowledge and understanding of the, of the law. And I, I thought if I, if I didn't succeed in becoming an MP, and I, I felt I had quite an internal battle to, to get reselected and uh, win again in, in 2010. It would be a, a good career that um, I thought I would be able to um, give something to if uh, I, I wasn't in politics. Because I think you qualified both as a barrister and a solicitor, didn't you? I did. I did the law conversion course in 2005-06 and I then did what was then called the bar vocational uh, course. And... I received an offer from um, Her- Herbert Smith to work for, for them as a leading law, law firm, particularly strong in, in, in litigation. And they they agreed to, to take me with the, the BBC and uh, to allow me to, to, to start and do the equivalent of a training contract. But I then had to take what was called the Qualified Lawyers uh, transfer uh, to test and learn, learn some things about solicitors' uh, accounts and uh, ethics and um, to take that... Uh, that, that that transfer, so I, I qualified as a, a solicitor as as well as a 
a barrister, albeit the, the barrister qualification is based on the, the one year course and I think uh, dining sort of eight, eight, eight times at, at Lincoln's Inn and I, I didn't uh, undertake pupillage so I shouldn't strictly describe myself as a non-practicing barrister from that perspective. And uh, as a solicitor I sort of qualified and then was uh, working as a, a solicitor at Herbert, Herbert Smith for a period before I um, won the 2010 election to become an MP for Rochester and Street. So you're in Parliament. At that time, to what extent was the European issue important to you? It was the major sort of dominating issue for me. And I was initially shocked that the Conservatives agreed a coalition agreement with the Liberal Democrats without a vote of the parliamentary party. I mean, just four people at the top, the, the Quad decided what the deal should be and came to this coalition agreement, but it wasn't agreed by the parliamentary party, let alone by the wider party. So I certainly didn't feel bound by that in the way I, I would more, more by a, a manifesto. And in particular, I was outraged that notwithstanding the Lib Dems demanding a real referendum on Europe, a referendum on membership of the European Union, uh, that 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 aspect was was dropped during the coalition um, negotiations, and George Osborne and David Cameron instead agreed to have a a referendum on the alternative vote system rather than a referendum on membership of the European Union, which was was my priority, and, and I think that the priority of I'd like to put a put a, n- a number on it, but depending uh, certainly a, a significant minority of opinion on the the Conservative backbenches that was completely ignored and I made my task to to try and correct that. At that time your ambition presumably from the point of view of seeking to get the UK out of the EU was to get a referendum. Uh, Absolutely we wanted an in-out referendum and I I worked uh, initially with uh, Douglas Carswell and a group, including but particularly importantly Steve uh, Baker, and we would, would meet every uh, Tuesday morning to um, plan how we were going to push the government into agreeing to a referendum on our membership of the, the European Union. And we had a, a, a series of uh, different uh, votes and issues that we, we pushed um, initially with Douglas Carswell starting with the EU budget and I think he, he gained about said, 40 or so votes at that at that time for, for a cut in the EU budget and we then went on and we used the backbench business procedure where we uh, got all our people elected to run the backbench business committee to choose what the business would be on those days. We then had a motion on the need for uh, an EU referendum. It, it did include the, the possibility of some sort of renegotiation as well as one on sort of in-out and that helped to maximise Numbers, and I think uh, we we then had about sort of eighty eighty three uh, conservatives at least who, who voted for that referendum. The government went very hard uh, against it. They decided to have a pitch battle with us on the subject. I'm not sure if that was to their good or not. And then after that, I then focused on the bailouts. I had a motion to sort of stop the the, the, the bailouts. I was sort of okay with the Irish uh, loan, given our close relations with uh, Ireland and indeed my own background, but I wasn't at all keen on bailing out sort of port. Portugal and then they were saying Greece as well so thanks to that the government in the end managed to sort of buy off much of the rebellion I was organising by getting the EU to agree that the the 60 billion euro um, fund would not be used anymore so we did keep 11.5 billion in that and that was a saving of a a couple of billion to 
sort of British taxpayers. So, so that we didn't get the numbers I had expected because the government gave way. But then I sort of fought against the increase in our subscription to the IMF, and uh, I got Ed Balls to agree that he would uh, he would back us. But in the end, I'm afraid Ed Miliband uh, overruled Ed Balls, and they they pulled out of doing that. But I remained in close touch. And in the end, managed to put down an amendment to a government motion using language that um, Labour had used at a previous uh, point and getting rid of all the stuff, just uh, attacking the Labour Party for no particular reason in the motion and just a clean motion saying that there should be a real terms reduction in the EU budget and um, defeated uh, the Cameron government for the first time on the floor of the House on that uh, motion. I had 55 Conservatives who backed me and the whole of the Parliamentary Labour Party, some with more enthusiasm than others, coming uh, behind my, my motion. And that was agreed by Parliament. And then Cameron went and uh, negotiated that cut in the EU budget that he previously said couldn't be done. But he then able was able to do once I passed a, a motion in Parliament demanding that he he do that. And uh, I think that, that again saved a number of billions to the uh, UK taxpayer. So... What was the strategy during that Parliament to arrive at a position in 2015 where there would be a commitment to an in-out referendum in the Conservative Party manifesto? Well, it was to show that the government no longer had a majority on EU uh, matters and where I was able to get Labour the support as on this uh, occasion, uh, they, they couldn't put together a majority even with the Lib Dems and having defeated them on the EU budget, having forced them to go in and cut the EU budget, having said that they couldn't before, it was the week following that that David Cameron uh, first told Angela Merkel that he was going to have to uh, uh, submit and have uh, an in-out referendum in the UK. So that was alright. So it was Labour's, there's a degree of irony here, isn't there? So it was Labour's support for the efforts of uh, Tory Eurosceptics that ultimately resulted in David Cameron saying, we are going to have an out of Absolutely. And it was Chris Leslie, uh, who was my main interlocutor and was Ed Balls' deputy, and he was the one sort of doing the deals with me, along with... Uh, Callum Campbell there, their deputy chief uh, whip, and while you know, once or, or, or twice they hadn't followed through on what they had agreed with me, um, I, I didn't let that uh, impede relations uh, and finally did get them uh, behind my motion and the whole Labour Parliamentary Party as well as 55 Conservatives voted to cut the EU budget against the UK government's wishes because they said it couldn't be done and it was done, but part of that they no longer had a majority on EU matters and uh, at least according to, um, it's not sort of, I'm talking to Martin Shipton, I'm trying to remember the Sunday Times journalist who is Ed Shipton. What's, um, Tim Shipman. Tim, Tim Shipman, excuse my, uh, but, but, uh, but, but his, his book records that it was the week, uh, it was the week after uh, my motion that Cameron first told Merkel there was going to have to be an in-out sort of referendum. And uh, he finally announced that at uh, his, Bloomberg, uh, his Bloomberg speech, and there was going to be a, a, a renegotiation and an out referendum, and, and that was our objective. So we'd achieved that, and I then sort of moved on to, to try and cement and underpin that commitment. And the renegotiation claims that Cameron was making were, were never terribly real, and he never did too much um, about it. But what I think I was able to kind of do was to, to overreach during the period of the, the Rochester and Strood by-election and promise that he was going to cap 
EU immigration as part of his renegotiation. And of course, um, he couldn't and didn't, and his renegotiation was then seen as a failure. Just remind us of the circumstances that led to your decision to leave the Conservatives and join UKIP. I mean, if the party was heading in the direction, if the Conservatives were heading in the direction of an in-out referendum, what was the point of um, going to UKIP? Well, I didn't trust David Cameron to deliver it, and it was only during the Rochester and Strood by-election that he promised that the commitment was non-negotiable, that he would not be Prime Minister again after an election unless he could deliver any now referendum. It wouldn't be traded away in negotiations with the Lib Dems and that he would legislate in the first 100 days of a new parliament for that in-out referendum, which he then did. But none of those, none of those things had been said before he was put under the, the pressure he was at the Rochester and Street by-election. How was it that you came to join UKIP then? How uh, long in advance of your um, resigning from the Conservative Party and resigning your seat and fighting a violation, had you been in talks with um, Nigel Farage and his... Well, I'd, I'd considered it in the run-up to the, the local elections in 2014. Um, I don't think I'd spoken with, with Nigel, at least uh, in, in the sense of what I was thinking about doing at that time. But it was only after those elections and a bit further on that I began to see UKIP taking a substantial number of Labour votes. My concern was there would be no advantage um, in simply cannibalising the Conservative vote. And I think uh, at a certain stage UKIP was taking very disproportionately Conservative votes. But around sort of 2014, uh, before I, I made the move, I think that changed. And of the the new votes that were coming into to, to UKIP, a lot of those were were Labour votes. And I think when I had the by election, I picked up at least as many votes from Labour as I did from Conservative. And many people who you know I had a good rapport with and had done constituency work for, and you know who perhaps thought well of me as an MP and personally, but wouldn't vote for me because I was Conservative. Uh, a lot of those people, and the majority previously voted Labour, were willing to come over and, 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 and back me uh, for UKIP when I stood in the, in the by-election. And I think, I think we saw in, in 2015 a number of seats at Balls' lot, lot loss, uh, say like Johnny Mercer perhaps winning in, in, in Plymouth as, as two examples where it was UKIP taking votes from Labour that let the Conservatives squeeze through and actually have the majority to deliver the referendum. You won the by-election, but then not that long afterwards you lost a general election. What did you think then? Did you think that your career was over as a politician, or what? Well, I thought it was always a risk that I would uh, win the by-election but lose the general election, because in the by-election one's able to sort of make the weather much more, and I was able to make it about me and, and my issues and what I wanted that by-election to be about much more than I could at a general election. And uh, also, you know, the Conservatives had, had toughened up their, their stance quite quite a lot between the the two, and they were claiming they were going to uh, cap EU migration, and of course they they couldn't and and didn't. But you know that's what they were claiming at the at, at the time. The 
election, I, I remember it was the, the counts got slower and slower at the Med one. I think I ended up with uh, the result, and I, I was announced just around the same time Ed, Ed Balls's loss was announced. I think we were on the Today program one after, one after the other in the in the, in, in the morning, and. Uh, yeah, it took a bit of time to sort of dust myself uh, down, but sort of happily uh, took on a, a, a position as head of policy uh, for UKIP. And priority the party had at that 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 time was the the opportunity which the Welsh Assembly elections gave to the party, partly due to the electoral system, but also because the uh, increasing strength of our support in Wales, particularly in many of the the valleys communities. I remember in the run-up to the 2016 Assembly election, your name suddenly appearing as uh, someone who was in the frame to be selected and was come to Wales. And inevitably, there were people who were not well disposed towards you or towards UKIP who were saying, this man's just a carpetbagger coming down here. At that stage, what did you know about Wales? Had you visited Wales very much in your time? Well, when I was at um, at school, we used to um, we used to come and play Monmouth at, rug- at rugby quite a lot. They were very good at rugby, Monmouth. That's so I think we almost always lost. And you I was there. about one mile over the board. Well, yes, no, well, well, not just to Monmouth because I was the captain of our cross country team, and we used to sort of uh, kick off our season each uh, September with a Chepstow uh, re- re- relay. So that was my other sort of regular regular jaunt into to Wales. But we, we holidayed in Wales a fair number of times as well. My my parents used to run uh, camps for young diabetics as a sort of doctor and a nurse helping them do their own injections and then other people had sort of diabetes and I think there was a, a school or at least a building called Claire, Claremont near Clanterdod Wells and we used to come there quite uh, a number of times and visit, visit all many places within an hour or two's drive as part of uh, the two-week programme with them. And I think at primary school they used to take us to St. Fagans as well many of the Somerset schools uh, school, it, schools do. So it was a slight, slightly sort of... Uh, uh, I suppose that's my introduction to uh, to, to, to Wales. My, my folks live in, in Somerset, so I'm obviously uh, closer closer to them here 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 now than I, I was when I was in Kent. But you wouldn't be able to claim that uh, there was a great sense of hereith uh, for you in terms of coming back to <laughs> Wales or anything like that. It was actually, uh, Mark, um, quite opportunistic from a political point of view to come to Wales and to be an assembly member. Well, I think there was an opportunity for for, for UKIP. We'd we'd had that that general election, we'd got, I think, 13% of the votes, but only one seat. And the unfairness of the uh, electoral system, but the opportunity the party had to build up in its own right, but also in terms of credibility for the referendum by having elected Assembly members in Wales able to campaign with the authority of public office on the Leave side... Of that vote, and the majority of Wales voted Leave. Yet the overwhelming number of other Assembly members were all Remain. So we thought it was important that that our side of the debate should be represented. And I agreed in terms of the policy development and the work I did with the team for the Assembly elections to to, to lead that lead on aspects of that work. Now, you'll have quickly uh, found out that the narrative that was put forward by the Labour Party, by Plaid Cymru and the Liberal Democrats in Wales was very much a Remain narrative and that they would be constantly referring to the need for the um, country to be within the single market and the customs union 
and that if we came out of the single market and the customs union it would be a complete disaster and all sorts of economic um, catastrophe would follow and indeed um, now that we're in a position where uh, it's looking more likely that there will be a, a no-deal uh, departure from uh, the EU, um, that kind of rhetoric has, has ramped up even further. You're an economist. Most economists would probably side with the view adopted by the, um, the other parties in Wales. Why are you so convinced that the UK will be able to prosper outside both the single market and the EU? Well, I learnt over the debates we had over the ERM and the Euro, where sort of all the establishment, or most of it, was, was lined up in favour of forcing the Wales and the UK to, to join these things. And we learnt through the ERM how destructive it was for our economy to, to tie it to the European Union in that way. What I would like to see is for us to trade more freely with the whole world. I think the European Union is wrong to have the barriers it does and that the huge tariffs sometimes referred to, particularly in the agricultural sector, against all, all, all people outside. I, I don't see why people should be forced to sort of pay a tax to the EU when they buy food and clothing and footwear and particularly things that are disproportionately bought by sort of poorer uh, people in our society in terms of the proportion of their income and I, I would like to see a sort of more more open sort of lower t t tariff sort of country that was engaging with the world as a whole not just one continent where the growth and opportunities are far less than the rest of the world. That's would lead, would it not, to the destruction of the Welsh farming industry? Well, I'm not sure that is the case. Um, I, I think at least on a transitional basis there should be a, a measure of uh, protection for farmers. But there is, I think from the Remain establishment that you identified, a, a lot of focus on the lamb sector. But, but what about beef? We have huge opportunities in the beef sector if we were to move to WTO tariffs, whether the same as the EU has, or I would hope somewhat less than that, given they would be applied both to Europe and the rest of the world. Instead of importing a third of our beef from Ireland, we could see Welsh farmers greatly increase their beef production to satisfy much of that domestic demand. We, we lost much of our beef industry over the BSE crisis or John Major's uh, beef war. And if we remember at the time, actually demand for beef in the UK and certainly for prime cuts rose. And it was, it was a sort of patriotic... Uh, duty almost to support um, our farmers. I, I would like to see us doing that for our, our lamb farmers. Yes, there are challenges for the lamb sector, but let's not forget as much New Zealand lamb as wants can come in at the, the moment, but it's a different season largely from Welsh lamb. And I would like to see us say to people across the UK, look, you voted to leave, but one of the sectors that faces real challenges because of that is lamb, and particularly Welsh lamb. So we should buy more lamb to support that sector and I think there would be you know, significant sympathy with people if we had that sort of marketing campaign. Why isn't Welsh Government doing that? Why isn't that part of the no-deal planning? 
One of the big claims of the Leave campaign during the course of the referendum and indeed since is that it would be possible to have um, some extremely good independent trade deals with other countries. Um, now I remember attending a talk given by the Swiss ambassador a few months ago who was talking about this very issue from the perspective of Switzerland and what he was saying was that um, uh, their experience uh, was that um, essentially the kind of deal that Switzerland was able to negotiate with these um, uh, uh, countries, third countries that they referred to, um, essentially replicating uh, deals that had already been negotiated or in the course of being negotiated with the EU. And of course, um, you know, a lot of people are worried about the fact that um, the UK as a single entity outside uh, a large trading bloc like the EU will not have the, uh, the leverage that uh, a big trading bloc will have in negotiations and therefore um, we will be at the mercy of um, people like Donald Trump when it comes to dictating the terms of a trade deal with the United States. What's your perspective on that? Well, a trade deal is a negotiation, and you, you decide whether whether you want that sort of deal or, or, or not, and whether it's better for your country to, to, to have the deal or no deal. That's the approach we should have taken to our EU negotiations. But what I would um, say is we're, we're the fifth largest uh, economy in the, the, the world. We're a very sizable and attractive market for many uh, countries, and we we shouldn't talk us down and ourselves down in that type of uh, way. I think one of the problems with the EU is it's it, it's been quite protectionist. And I, I think if you're looking to protect uh, certain sort of producers in Europe, including whether it's sort of Portuguese sort of footwear sort of uh, makers, whether it's some of the agricultural products that we don't produce in this country, why on earth do we want to put huge tariffs on these things why why should every time a woman buys a bra why should she pay a pound to the eu we should just be able to buy those products particularly when we don't make them our ourselves from other countries often china without taxing our consumers every time they want to do so in order to protect european producers um, much of the benefit of free trade deals isn't only in the access we're able to negotiate to overseas markets but is allowing our consumers to buy things more cheaply than they, they previously did. All of these prognostications about doomsday after October the 31st, if we leave without a deal, um, do you think this is an extension of what you would describe as Operation Fear, or do you think that people are uh, right to be genuinely concerned given that the UK government itself has published papers which indicate that there will be logistical difficulties at the very least? I mean, there may be logistical uh, difficulties, but many of the papers that have been published by the, the British government or the Bank of England or other sort of public entities of that time are, are written by the very same people who told us that there was going to be a collapse in the economy and soaring unemployment immediately if we, we voted to, to leave. Not when we left, but just in response to the shock, the economic shock of the the leave vote, the economy would go into recession and there'd be at least another half million people unemployed. It was a load of rubbish. And those same people have since been writing reports making similar or worse claims about what leaving the EU or no deal might lead to, but they've no credibility because they told us that before the referendum and it didn't happen. Also, many of those forecasts, perhaps as the people writing them have concern they're about to be called to account, 
they've actually been watered down. And the sort of great fears and massive reductions in output that some of these people were purporting were going to happen uh, have now been revised down very, very significantly. Uh, Bank of England, uh, n- notably, and uh, a number of respected um, forecasters are suggesting that there may be a, a slowing of growth, or there may be you know, some some challenges. But none of this nine ten percent reduction in GDP stuff we were, we're hearing. I, I I don't think that is is credible or serious. And I think many of these forecasts don't take into account the likely policy response, particularly when you have a government that at least now purports to believe in. Brexit, and rather than sort of treating it solely as a danger to be mitigated, sees it as an opportunity and is looking to change policy in order to benefit from Brexit rather than just carry on doing what we were doing when we had to do it as part of the EU. And you're not concerned that inward investors are going to say, we want access to the European single market, so we'll pull out of Wales, UK? Well, different investors will have different uh, interests, and if we do have tariffs, and I, I hope we won't, I would prefer a, a free trade uh, scenario. If we do have tariffs, I hope it won't be for, for very long. But but one of the things you w- would see is because we import so much more from the EU than we export to the EU, there is likely to be a bigger impact from import substitution and the desire of... Um, companies and investors to serve the UK market who might then need to have production in the UK market so as not to pay the tariff that they would otherwise be paying if they were previously supplying the UK market from the EU. And we need to have a lot more focus on those uh, opportunities than only looking at the, the companies where there might be difficulties. Do you have greater faith in Boris Johnson in terms of taking the UK out than you had in David Cameron and Theresa May? Somewhat greater faith. Um, it remains to be seen. You know, he's promised many times to take us out on the 31st of October, but I uh, heard Theresa May make those promises, I think, over 100 times to take us out on the 31st of March. Um, she didn't, and the extent to which you know, Boris speaks for the whole of the... Uh, Conservative Party, who as recently as December last year, just uh, eight months ago, gave a two-to-one majority to keep Theresa May in in place. So, which is the real Conservative Party? We will we will see. If we do come out of the EU on October the thirty-first, is there any further point in there being a Brexit party? Well, I think we will see how the the political situation develops. I mean, I do hope we come out of the EU on the 31st of October. And if we come out with a renegotiated deal, which is a sort of rehashed sort of version of May's deal, perhaps with some improvements uh, on the backstop, I'm not sure that's something that the the Brexit party would um, support. And if it's Brexit in name only or anything like that, then I, I think that would be something that many people would be unhappy about and the Brexit party would look to express and represent their views. Similarly, if we leave with no deal, um, that may not be the end of it. And I think it's important that if there is a continuing Conservative government that it feels the pressure to stick to a strategy of national independence. And if just for a short period we have no deal, but then they sort of leap into signing up to to some deal tying us to the EU forevermore, again, that would be something that the Brexit party would want to oppose and represent uh, people on. But 
I think that the Conservative Party sort of faces a huge degree of pressure from the Brexit Party, and I think that's right and, and good. And uh, the more committed to No Deal Boris is, the more able is to deliver and stick to that, then the more people who would otherwise back the Brexit uh, Party may be persuaded to back the Conservative Party, and that's how democracy works. That's what we want the incentives to be. But if there is a backsliding, uh, the Brexit Party will be here to, to represent those who believe that Britain, the United Kingdom, should be an independent country. Could you envisage yourself returning to the Conservative Party? Uh, no, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that uh, is in prospect. Just finally, um, Mark, um, you've concentrated a lot on the uh, economic reasons for your opposition to membership of the EU. Um, does it make you uncomfortable that a lot of the campaigning that went on at the time of the um, referendum and a lot of the rhetoric that is around now um, is actually quite unpleasantly racist? Well, I'm not sure if that is the is the case. Look at social media. Well, I mean, look at the surveys that asked people in every country across Europe how they feel about immigration and immigrants, and you will see that the United Kingdom is pretty much the most liberal, pro-immigration, pro-immigrant country in Europe. And it may suit sort of Remainers and people who want to reverse the result to suggest that sort of. Brexit and the majority of the United Kingdom are sort of Neanderthal sort of racist, but it's a preposterous uh, allegation. But there are racists on board, aren't there? No, no, there are, there are some racists on uh, all, all, all sides. Uh, I would encourage people to uh, appreciate our diversity and, and sort of welcome the, the contributions that people make from all manner of uh, of backgrounds. And I, I think one of the, the good things of the 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 referendum vote is actually on those same surveys when you ask people which issues they're most concerned about uh, people are much less concerned about immigration because they believe we're going to be able to to have a sensible system and control our, our borders and control immigration because we're leaving the European Union and therefore people have become more tolerant of uh, uh, immigration and I, I think that will make it uh, us better able to um, celebrate our, our diversity and make, make everyone in our, our country um, feel welcome. Mark Reckless, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.